me just pray for us again. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for this time that we have together, and we thank you for your word whom, that you've chosen to share with all of us. God, we ask that you provide us today with open hearts and open minds so that we may receive your message with gladness. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, first let me share that when I was in high school, uh, when my friends and I were about to turn 16, uh, the biggest thing for us during that time was learning how to drive a car. Now, you'll see a, basically a lot of people would be asking each other, hey, can, can you drive yet? Can you drive yet? Really, we just want to know so, because we want to get a ride from each other, you know, to school, from school, to the mall. Basically, what, what we're asking when we're asking one another, can you drive yet, we actually mean two things. Do you, have, do you know and have the ability to drive? And then also, are you allowed to drive? Do you have your driver's license? So basically, when we're asking that question, we mean, do you have the power to drive and the authority to drive? So this is when it's helpful, actually, for us to distinguish between power and authority. Because power, think of it as more of an ability to do something, whether you have the power to do something. While authority is more like authorization or the right to do something. So most likely this will be given by an authorizing agency. So in this case, you, know, you may have the ability to drive, maybe you can drive, but you won't be able to drive until you get your driver's license. Uh, that, that's from the local government. And then even after you've received that authorization, although you know, even though you now have the right to drive, you still have to submit to the government's law and regulations. Because then what happens if you break the government's law and regulations while you're driving? You're going to get in trouble, right? And you may get your license taken away. So similarly, in the passage that we'll be looking at today, you know, we'll see how the Jewish religious leaders during Jesus' time how they're going to try to get rid of Jesus by questioning his authority. They'd ask, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? So this is actually a very, very important question because the answer to this question would determine who Jesus is, what authority he has, and then whether or not we should even submit to him. So the one thing for us today is this, guys. Submit to Jesus for he is the Son of God who acts in the authority of God. Submit to Jesus, for he is the Son of God who acts in the authority of God. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 47. We're going we're gonna to start in Luke chapter 19, and then go into Luke chapter 20 until verse 18. So Luke 19, verse 47, until 20, verse 18. So just for context, uh, last week, we saw how finally Jesus arrived at the city of Jerusalem. And then as he was entering, we saw how his disciples, they gathered together, they rejoiced, they threw their cloaks and, and palm branches, and they were welcoming Jesus as the promised king who, who they've been waiting for. And then as Jesus saw the city, he wept over it because he knew what would happen to those in the city who reject him, that they'd be condemned. And then Jesus went to the temple and then he drove out those who sold, the money changers and the merchants. And he reminded the people that the temple, the purpose of the temple was to be a house of prayer. So that's where we're at now. 
So let's uh, please follow along with me as I read for us Luke 19, verse 47, until 20, verse 18. And he, that's Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is God's word. So we'll take a look at this passage today in three parts. First, the religious leaders question Jesus' authority. And then second, we'll see Jesus answers with a question. And then third, Jesus answers with a parable. It's like a two-part answer. Uh, just a heads up, guys. Uh, we'll be taking just a quick, quick, basically cursory look through the first point. The first point is just going to be more of a setup. And then the second point, we're going to go through it relatively quickly as well. Uh, more of our time today will be spent in the last point. So just a heads up. All right, so let's take a look at the first point. Uh, the religious leaders question Jesus' authority. Uh, please take a look again at chapter 19, verse 47. So after Jesus finally entered the city of Jerusalem, and after he drove away all the merchants, all the money changers, after all those things that uh, has happened, Jesus continued to return to the temple each day, and he continued to teach daily at the temple. And each day, uh, we know from verse 48, that the people were captivated by what Jesus was teaching. 
They were amazed by the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching about. But then we'll find out that there are others who are captivated by Jesus for an entirely different reason. At this time, Jesus was being watched by chief priests. So these were high-ranking temple priests. So maybe you know, they were there and they saw Jesus as he, as he was driving out people from the temple, uh, those who sold. And then Jesus was also being watched by the scribes. So these were lawyers or, or masters of the law. And then he's being watched by the principal men of the people. So most likely these were leaders in politics, in business, and you know, maybe some of these guys were even involved in organizing the business at the temple. So at this time, what we know is that these men, they've been observing Jesus very closely. You know, and, and, and if we're asking, you know, why are they doing that? It's because Jesus' authority was challenging their authority. Because for the past three years, Jesus' reputation and his influence has continued to increase. And there's been more and more people following Jesus. And it even climaxed recently as a large number of his disciples, right, were rejoicing, welcoming him as he entered Jerusalem. So then now what they're thinking is, in order to preserve their own authority, what they need, what they need to do is to get rid of this threat to their authority. So they wanted to kill Jesus. They've had enough of him. Now look at verse 48. But they didn't find anything that they could do. They couldn't find a way to kill Jesus. Because at this time, all the people, they were captivated by him, hanging on to what Jesus was saying. So for the leaders, this was a huge problem. So I imagine that they started discussing amongst themselves, man, what's the best strategy for us to get rid of this Jesus? And it seems that what they realized is that if they wanted to kill Jesus, then they'd first have to turn the people against him. So let's see what they'll do here. Look at chapter 20, verses 1 to 2. So during one of the days that Jesus, that Jesus was teaching at the temple, that he was preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him. And they publicly said to Jesus in front of everyone, tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. So in other words, what they're questioning is, what authority, what right do you have to drive away the money changers and the merchants from the temple? Who authorized you to teach at the temple? Because it wasn't from us. Because you know, the elders, they're distinguished members of the Sanhedrin. So just so you, so you guys know, the Sanhedrin is like the Jewish Supreme Council. And they have a religious, civil, criminal jurisdiction over the people. So all that to say, these were really powerful, influential, religious men. And they had official authority. So the people who were after Jesus, you know, they're no longer just the local Pharisees from the local synagogues. These are the very, very top leaders now. And these top religious leaders, they think, that Jesus had no official authority, that he had no authority to do any of the, of the things that he's doing because he doesn't belong to a specific sect. He had no official priestly authority. He's, he has no official scribal authority. He was not a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and he was not a member of the Sanhedrin. So then by asking this question, 
what they're trying to do, they're just trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to turn the people against him by having them question Jesus' authority. This is what they're thinking. Because if Jesus says that his authority is from anyone or anything else other than God, then that would destroy his credibility. And then they just question the people. Why are you guys listening to him? But then if Jesus says that his authority is from God, so if he states publicly and openly that he is the son of God and he is the promised king, then what the leaders are hoping is this. Either some of the people there would turn on him, accusing him of blasphemy, or they're hoping that it would get the Romans' attention because Jesus' declaration of his kingship would be a threat to the Roman government. So then what they're thinking is that no matter what Jesus says, this is going to be a win-win situation. You know, they got Jesus where they wanted him. So then how will Jesus answer their question? Let's take a look at the second part. Jesus answers with a question. So spoiler there in the title. Uh, Let's look at verse 3. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Uh-oh, you know, this, this is not part of their plan. When Jesus said this, they probably got a bit flustered. You know, this is not what they had in mind. And Jesus said, now tell me, was the, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? So in other words, was John the Baptist's baptism and his ministry, was it authorized by God, a heavenly authorizing agency, or was it by man? by a worldly authorizing agency. Because John the Baptist, you know, he also didn't have official authority from the religious leaders to baptize. Yet, he continued to baptize disciples, those who repent of their sins and turn to God. And then John pointed them of a coming Messiah, the Son of God, the promised King. And John proclaimed publicly that this Son of God, this Messiah, is Jesus When he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said publicly, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So this is what John proclaimed publicly, that Jesus is the Son of God who acts in the authority of God. He is the Messiah. So with Jesus asking, so Jesus is basically asking this question, because the religious, the religious leader's answer to this question would also be the answer to their own question. Then here's the thing. The religious leaders, they didn't believe that John's authority was from God. And they didn't believe that Jesus is who John says he is. Now, in fact, you know, when John was baptizing disciples, the Pharisees, they sent people to question him. You know, if you're not the Christ, or Elijah, or a prophet, then why are you baptizing? And they rejected his message. And the Pharisees and the lawyers, they were not baptized by John. So they actually knew the answer to Jesus' question right away because they believed that John's authority was not from God. But then instead of answering Jesus, they discussed among themselves and they carefully thought about it first. Let's look at uh, verse 5. This is what they're thinking now. If they said that John's authority was from heaven, so from God, then they think that Jesus would then ask them, then why didn't you believe him? You know, why didn't you get baptized? Why don't you believe in what he proclaimed about me? And then basically if that happens, 
that would publicly destroy the leader's reputation and authority. And those were the very things that they're trying to protect, right? But then, if they said that John's authority was from man, then they think that the people there would stone them to death for heresy because the people there believe that John was a prophet. So now they see this as a lose-lose situation. So they just said that they did not know where John's authority came from. Now look at verse 8. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now Jesus is not saying this because he doesn't know where his authority came from. But he's just not answering in the way that the religious leaders wanted him to answer. He did not fall for their trap. But through Jesus' question, he actually gave an answer. Because through the question, Jesus is pointing the people, directing the people to John the Baptist, to what John the Baptist is proclaiming about him, that he is the Son of God, and therefore he acts in the authority of God. So that's the answer to to their question. Now before we continue, uh, I just want to make it clear to all of us that it's definitely okay for us to ask questions. So if by the end of, the, of our service, you know, you're still unsure or still trying to figure out who Jesus is and what authority he has, you know, please ask those important questions. I'd, and and encur- encourage you to talk to me or to talk to anyone around you after the service. You know, we'd love to talk to you. But you know, please just keep in mind that what's also important is how, is how we approach these questions. You know, we should, we should seek the answers to our questions genuinely with an open heart and an open mind so that we can get to the truth. You know, not like these, these religious leaders who already made up their minds ahead of time and they actually didn't care about what Jesus said. They just wanted to trap him. Because for these leaders, you know, what they actually cared about was not the truth. What they actually cared about was their own authority. They just wanted to preserve the authority that they already had. Now, if we take a step back, you know, let's ask ourselves, how about us? How about me? What power and authority do I have? Because if we think about it, you know, we all have some sort of power, some sort of authority over something. Because authority is integrated into all aspects of our lives. You know, even when we're children, our parents give us some sort of authority to take care of our belongings. And then as we grow up, you know, perhaps we became a bit more independent. And then now we have authority to, to manage our own finances. And then as we get a job as employees, we have the authority from our employer to do the work that we're supposed to do. And then perhaps some of us as team leaders or managers, we have some authority over our team members. And then for those of you, of you guys who are parents, you have the authority to take care of and to discipline your children and so forth. So, you know, we all have some sort of authority. And perhaps the, the amount of authority that we have continues to increase over time. And to a certain degree, you know, we like to maintain that authority that we have. You know, we may not go as far as, you know, the religious leaders and we say, okay, we're not like them, you know. We wouldn't go as far as trying to kill someone in order to maintain what we have. But let's not quickly dismiss what, the, what these leaders were doing here. Because in fact, as sinners, our natural tendency is to desire absolute authority over everything in our lives. 
You know, we want to be completely in control and to not lose control over the things that we already have authority over. Because just like them, you know, we also don't want to lose the authority over what we have, over our finances, our belongings, work, anything else. And maybe it even makes us nervous when our authority is threatened. So in that sense, you know, maybe we're not too different from these leaders than we'd like to be. So let's all keep that in mind as we see what happens next. Let's move on to our third point here. Jesus answers with a parable. So look, uh, let's look at verse 20. So after Jesus answers the religious leader's question with another question, Jesus now kind of gives a part two to his answer, this time through a parable, which is a, a fictional story that Jesus would use in order to make a particular point. So in his parable, we're, intru- we're introduced to a man, an owner of a vineyard who leased his vineyard to tenant farmers. And then this man went to another country for a long while. So something to note here, guys, is that uh, this kind of arrangement, like tenant farming, this is actually uh, something that's of a common practice during that time. So this uh, parable would have been quite familiar uh, for Jesus' audience. And also, uh, another thing that would be familiar to to Jesus' Jewish audience is what the owner and the vineyard would symbolize. Because to them, as they're hearing this, it would remind them of Scripture. So specifically of what's written in Isaiah, which refers to the people of Israel as the Lord's vineyard. So that's what they'd be thinking as they're listening to this. So so to uh, Jesus' audience, it would be somewhat obvious to them that the owner of the, of the vineyard represents God, and then the vineyard itself represents Israel. That would be kind of uh, somewhat obvious to them. And then God entrusted Israel, his people, to tenant farmers who represent the Jewish religious leaders. So these are people who are supposed to protect and to take care of the people of Israel. They're the ones who are supposed to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. They're supposed to be the one who are leading more and more people to turn away from their sins, to repent, and to turn to God. That's what they're supposed to do. But let's see what they ended up doing instead. You know, let's go back to the parable now. So after, after some time had passed, you know, it's finally time for the grape harvest. So then the owner, he sent a servant uh, to the tenants in order to collect uh, his share of the harvest. So the owner was expecting fruit. Again, you know, this is a common arrangement during that time. So what's happening here, uh, it would not be a surprise to the people listening. But what is a surprise, what is shocking, would be how the tenant, for, uh, how the tenant farmers treated the owner's servant when he came to collect uh, his share of the harvest. We see here that the tenants beat the servant and then sent him away empty-handed. They didn't give him anything. So just... For a moment, can you guys imagine, let's say you're operating uh, a kosan or, or a, a boarding house, and then you send your worker to collect rent from your tenants. And then your tenants beat, beat up the person that you just sent and then did not give you the money. They just sent him away. You know, what would you do in that situation if you're the owner of this kosan? You know, wouldn't you punish the tenants and then kick them out? You know, that would be reasonable, right? That's what you'd expect. But then what did this owner do? What did the owner of the vineyard do? What he does is even more shocking than what the tenants did. He didn't punish them. 
At least not yet. But he sent a second servant. But unfortunately, this servant was also beaten. He was treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed again. And even then, the owner still yet sent a third servant whom they also wounded and hurt and then chased away. Now the servants here represent the prophets. So God's messengers who came to deliver a message to his tenants. And the prophets, they came in the authority and, and, and through God's command. But then what happened to God's prophets? We see in the Old Testament that many of them were not listened to. Actually, they were beaten and some were even killed. And John the Baptist, he was one of these prophets. But then the religious leaders, they didn't believe him. They didn't believe that his authority was from God. And so what they did was that they ridiculed him. They disregarded him. Now to those uh, listening to Jesus' parable during this time, you know, what they may be thinking is this. Okay, now, after three servants have been beaten, surely now this owner is going to punish the tenants. Let's look at verse 13. The owner still did not yet punish his tenants, but he chose to send his beloved son to them in the hope that they'd finally show him respect. But then what, what did the tenants do to his son? They threw, they threw him out of the vineyard, and then he didn't just drive him away, but then they killed him. Now the owner is not going to see his son again. And then why did, he, why did they do that? Look at verse 14. This is their reasoning. They killed the owner's son in order to take over the vineyard all for themselves. After all, at this point, you know, they haven't seen the owner in a long while. And what they're thinking is that he's far away. I mean, they've already beaten three servants and nothing's happened. They've gone away with it so far. So surely they'd get away with this as well, right? That's probably what they're thinking. We now have authority over the vineyard ourselves. Now, the owner's beloved son here represents Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet, just like the tenant farmers in this parable, the religious leaders, they desire to kill Jesus so that they could keep whatever authority they had for themselves and that they wanted to rule over the people for their own benefits. So what we're seeing here is man's sinful tendency to use their authority for their own benefits to use our authority for our own benefit, even at the expense of others' well-being. Now, perhaps this is why, you know, talking about authority may make some of us feel a bit uneasy because some of us here may even be hesitant to submit to authority because maybe some of us have personally experienced deep hurt from others in our lives who have mishandled or have abused their authority. Maybe it was from our parents or other family members, friends, uh, employers, government officials, or other people who have hurt us in the past by the way that they've misused their authority. So what we can see here from these tenant farmers is that our authority can be misused in such a way that it's so harmful. And that's because bad authority is self-focused. Not others-focused, but self-focused, and it's not accountable. So bad authority is self-focused. So those who practice bad authority, they focus on preserving their own authority, 
without much thought of others. And that can lead them to hurting others, like these tenant farmers. So imagine a, a manager who, t- who takes credit for all of his employees' good ideas, but then when they come up with a bad idea, basically, they bl- uh, the, the, the manager blames them. You know, he just wants to look good in, ter- in front of his higher-ups so that he can get a promotion. You know, that's harmful to others for the sake of his own benefit. You know, that's bad use of authority. And bad authority is also not accountable. You know, it doesn't submit to anyone. Now, imagine the same manager. He starts to do whatever he wants just because, just because he can, just because he has the authority to. And he tells his employees to do what's not appropriate. Or perhaps he starts talking badly about his boss in front of others. You know, basically, he has no self-control. You know, just like the tenant farmers, again, who abuse their authority. That's, they abuse the authority that's been given to them, and they don't submit to higher authority. Now, what bad authority can do is that it can lead us and lead others to be hesitant in submitting to good authority. Because authority itself is actually not inherently bad, it's good. Now, let's, let's observe now how God uses his, his authority. So let's look at how the owner uses his authority. Basically, in short, it's just the complete opposite of the tenant farmers. Because unlike them, the owner is not self-focused, but is others-focused. You know, that's the big difference here. Good authority, unlike bad authority, is good authority is others-focused. And we see that, you know, this owner, he shares his authority with others for their benefit. You know, he allows the tenants to use what belongs to him. And he, he trusts his servants to do his work. And then he's also slow to exercise the authority that he, to use the authority that he has to punish, uh, to punish those who are under him. You know, he's patient to those who have wronged him. Now, this is what our God is like. You know, he uses his authority for the good of others. And what makes this even more shocking is that there's actually no one higher than our God. He is the highest, the ultimate, the absolute authority. So technically, he's not accountable to anyone. He's only accountable to himself. He has the right to do whatever that he deems fit. But he chose to use his authority for the good of others. And he uses it with much care and patience. And he's slow to punish those who have sinned against him. Now, generally speaking, like we know that for those who reject and disobey a higher authority, that what they deserve is punishment. That if you break the law, you know, assuming that the law is just, that you'll be judged for what you've done wrong. So similarly, we all have disobeyed a higher authority. In fact, we've all disobeyed the highest authority. Because as tenants in God's world, we've used our authority for our own benefits and we've mistreated others, either, no, either knowingly or unknowingly. And we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard of righteousness. And for breaking God's perfect laws, what we deserve is punishment. And the punishment that God has warned us about throughout Scripture is that we would be punished eternally in hell. That's the just punishment for disobeying the highest 
of all authority. Yet God is patient and he's merciful and he's gracious and he chose to wait. And then not just that, but that he chose to send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to die on the cross for our sake. Now can you imagine that? We, who are like the sinful tenants, we are saved because God sent his son to die for us. You know, it's hard to imagine, but that's what he did. And, that, and all those who believe in Jesus, who took on the punishment that we deserve, those who believe in his authority as the son of God, as Lord and Savior, we will not be punished, we will not perish, but instead will be rewarded with eternal life. It's not what we deserve, but that's why, we, that's why it's called grace. You know, God gave us what we, de- what we didn't deserve. And we who were once like the sinful tenant farmers, we're not only forgiven, but we're now adopted into God's family as his children, as heirs to the kingdom of God who will obtain eternal life. And that's not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has already done for us. And through this parable, Jesus again he answers the religious leader's question a second time. And he's, he's now basically declaring himself that he is indeed the son of God. He is the beloved son of God who acts in the authority of God. You know, look at the parable. We see how the son is completely separate from the, the servants. He's different from the servant. In the same way, Jesus is not like other messengers or other prophets whom God has sent in the past. He's the Son of God. And the Son of God is God the Son. The Son of God is God the Son. He is God Himself. He came from heaven to earth, to Jerusalem, fully man, fully God. And thus, Jesus' authority is above all authorities, above anything else that's in heaven or on earth. If we think about it, it's even authority over all the diseases. Remember, how Jesus healed many people during his ministry on earth, those who were bleeding, who had leprosy, those who were blind. And his authority also includes authority over death itself. Remember how Jesus commanded Jairus' daughter and Lazarus to get back up, and he resurrected them from the dead. And it includes authority over all the earth, even over creation itself. You know, we've seen Jesus calm a storm, and his disciples even asked, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? And includes authority even beyond the earth over demons and evil spirits that even a legion of demonic spirits have to listen to Jesus' command as he easily casts out demons from those who are possessed. So as the son of God who acts in the authority of God, Jesus has the highest authority. So this is who Jesus truly is then the only proper response for us is to submit to him, to listen to him, and to obey his commands. And not only would that, be, would that be right and appropriate for us to do, but we can actually do so willingly and joyfully with gladness because we know that our God is good and patient and he cares for us and that his authority is, is completely good. And those who submit to him 
those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be saved. But then now, you know, what happens to those who continue to reject his son? Let's look at verse 15. Jesus asked them, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants. So finally, the owner, he'll exercise the authority that he has as the true owner of the vineyard, and he will destroy those who rejected his authority, those who rejected his son. God will punish those who reject him, those who reject his son, Jesus Christ. But interestingly, you know, Jesus doesn't just stop there with the tenant's destruction. He, con- he goes on, and this is what he continues to say. And then he'll give the vineyard to others, to others. So some commentators believe that the others here represent the Gentiles or the non-Jews. Uh, but then other commentators, they also believe that the others here may refer uh, to the apostles, to those Jesus would later uh, entrust his people to. Uh, we can actually get a clear picture of, of what is meant by others here by reading the parallel account in the book of Matthew, where Jesus explains that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruits, to a people producing its fruits, so to other tenants who would submit to his authority and give him his share of the harvest in their seasons. Now, the religious leaders, you know, they seem to understand what Jesus meant here. And they said, surely not. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that that something like this would ever happen, that that their authority would be taken away and given to someone else. Now look at verse 17. Jesus then looks directly at them in the eyes. You know, he wants them to make sure that they know that he was speaking to them. And this is what he said. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, what is a cornerstone? You know, when building a structure, uh, such as a house, uh, when you use stones or bricks, basically the cornerstone would be the first stone or the first brick that is set in the corner. So two main purposes uh, of the cornerstone. It serves as a reference point to how the other stones or the other bricks should be placed. Because without it, you know, the the wall may slant or or, or it won't remain straight during the construction. It acts as a reference point. But it also serves as a strong foundation for the other stones and bricks uh, that would be stacked on top of it. So it's a foundation for the entire structure. So what Jesus is saying is this, that he is the stone that the builders rejected. And he is the one whose authority the religious leaders have rejected. But then even though the religious leaders would successfully kill him, Jesus will then be given a place of honor as the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. He'll become the foundation of his rebuilt people, his new tenants, the church. And those who reject him as the son of God, as the cornerstone, they will be crushed and destroyed. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, this is what he said to his disciples from Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is what's known as the Great Commission. And Jesus gave his new tenants, his new people, this command to make disciples of all nations, to teach others what he's commanded us. And Jesus has delegated his authority to us. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he says, go therefore. He's delegating that authority to us. So as the new tenant farmers, we now have his delegated authority in order to produce fruit for God. So what that means is that we're to share the good news with others so that more and more people will repent of their sins, will turn to God, put their faith in Christ, and not be crushed by the cornerstone, but be saved instead. So then as his people, you know, how can we submit to Jesus' authority? It's by following his, it's by obeying his command, including this great commission. And we're to use the authority that God has entrusted to us, not for our own selfish gain, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the kingdom of God, for others. We're to use our God-given authority for others' benefit in order to point them to Christ. So then let's ask ourselves, you know, how, ha- how have you been using your authority? Has it been to protect your own reputation? Or has it been to help others grow, pointing them to the good news of Jesus Christ? And because as Christians, how we steward and, and how we exercise our God-given authority will either do one of two things. It will either help others turn to God or push them away from God. It will either help, help them understand God's good authority when they observe us or it will only confuse people as they observe us practice bad authority. So at work, you know, how do you handle your authority? You know, if you're a leader or a manager, how are you using your authority to point others to Christ, including both your Christian and non-Christian co-workers? You know, when your team members mess up, you actually have the authority to correct them. As their manager, you have that authority. But then how will you go about it? You know, will you make them feel bad, bringing them down? Or will you encourage them to help them improve and grow, showing them that you do care for them, you you care for them, and, that it, and it reveals to them that your God is good and he does care. And in the family home, you know, if you're married, husbands, think of how you've been leading your wife. You know, how does it point to how Christ leads his church as the cornerstone? And if you're a parent, parents, what are you teaching your children about God's authority by the way that you discipline them? or by the way that they see you submit to higher authority. And teens, are you honoring your parents' authority? Are you submitting to them as God commands you to do? You know, as part of Christ's body, as part of His church, are we pointing others to Christ by the way that we use our authority? Or are we pointing them away from Christ by the way that we're using it for ourselves? Now, you know, these are just some examples. It's definitely not an exhaustive list of all that we can do. But, you know, one practical thing that you may want to do is to take some time intentionally to list down uh, all the different authority that God has entrusted to you in all the various areas of your lives, including work, family, church, and so forth. 
And perhaps what you can do is just take some time tonight or sometime this week to just pray through those things and to ask yourself, you know, how can you be faithful in storing the authority that God has delegated to you? Now, going back to the religious leader's question to Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? Who is it that gave you authority? You know, we mentioned earlier at the very beginning that this is actually a very, very important question because the answer to this question would determine who Jesus is, what authority he has, and whether or not we should submit to him or not. And hopefully we learned that Jesus is the Son of God who acts in the authority of God, which is the highest of all authorities. And even though Jesus has the highest authority, he chose to submit to human authorities, laying down his life for us at the cross so that we may be saved. So hopefully when we look at Jesus, at how good he is and how good his authority is, hopefully it allows us to willingly and joyfully submit to him as our highest authority and as our Lord and Savior. And then as his people, as those who have been delegated uh, his authority, may, may we use it not for our own gain, but for others, pointing others to Christ so that we may continue to build up his church with Jesus as the cornerstone, as our foundation, so that more and more people will not be crushed, but be saved. So again, the one thing for us is this. Submit to Jesus, for he is the Son of God who acts in the authority of God. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that your authority is the highest. No one, nothing else in the heavens or on earth even have authority that comes close to yours. Yet God, how you choose to use authority is unimaginable to us. Because instead of using it for yourself, you use it for us. Jesus, you use your authority to come from heaven to earth and you laid down your life for our sake. Lord, as your new people, as your new tenants, help us to be faithful with, with the delegated authority whom you've entrusted to us. Help us to not use it for selfish gain, but help us to use it to bring others to come to know you so that more and more people will, will come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, please help us to work together as your people, as your church, to build up your body. Lord, we surrender all this to your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.